Hello and welcome to the Travelling Ergonomist podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Angra, and my job as an ergonomics consultant is to educate people on how to get their bodies into neutral postures. And in today's professional world, with the prominence of agile and remote working, ergonomics is more important than ever. So sit back, relax, and let's navigate the workplace together. With over 20 years experience in business, education and health, Heidi is a sought after speaker, consultant, author and leader who has a unique ability to bring out the best in people. Throughout her career, she's helped countless individuals and corporate clients to achieve better workplace health via online and offline programs, workshops, conferences and group sessions. I'm so glad we met a couple of years ago and to be able to call her my friend. Heidi has also recently published her first book called Her Name is Courage and I would urge you to read it for strategies on how to become a self-leader. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about really prominent issues such as mental health, resilience, finding courage, becoming a self-leader and advice for individuals and businesses on creating a more positive mindset in the workplace. Would you mind introducing yourself and what you get up to with your day-to-day role? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Heidi Denning and I'm a speaker, author and educator here in Sydney, Australia and So I am really doing a couple of things. I'm working in businesses and organisations to help them develop a strategy. I work with their leadership team to develop a strategy so they can create a world-class culture where their most talented people don't go looking for a greener patch of grass. So what we do is we create an overall strategy that aligns with the the complete business strategy and then it's like a one-page action plan that they can put in place post our strategy time and then either they DIY it themselves or I go in and I work with a small project team two to four hours a month to help them to deliver that strategy. It's all based around wanting to budge one particular KPI for them. So in my world, that's usually either around absenteeism, getting your brand equity up, so being able to attract the right people or once you've attracted them, to be able to retain them in your company. So every decision we then make is all around improving that number so that we can rest assured that we have an ROI. So that's kind of that education part. I then deliver workshops within companies for their staffing teams. That's usually around building resilience and self-leadership. I believe that it is the gutsy, authentic, resilient self-leaders who are making the greatest differences to our workplaces and our world. And I've kind of got it my mission to increase the number of those self-leaders because of the difference they are really making. And then I speak at conferences. So I do a lot of keynote speaking across many industries or around stress and burnout and how to create a thriving work culture through empowering the people within your organization to be self-leaders and to build their resilience and I've just written a book actually as well that's the author part (laughs) so they're the three kind of different things that I'm doing at the moment so you're not really doing too much then (laughs) no just kind of sitting (laughs) back feet up (laughs) thank you that's incredible that you've got all of all of these things going on and I think we certainly need someone like you in our businesses because Certainly this topic around mental health is becoming bigger and bigger. And I don't think businesses 
do know how to tackle those challenges? Yeah, look, it's a really tricky one. And I, um, the signature program that I do, this strategy work, we call it the We Care program because really as humans, all we want to feel is to be cared for by somebody else. Now, I don't mean that in a kind of, oh, I'm going to stroke your hair kind of care. It's just that somebody is actually looking out for our physical, mental, social health. And one of the parts of this program that we talk about in this We Care Signature program is do you, as the business leader, being the owner or the CEO or the HR leader, do you have the courage to talk about workplace mental health? Because just as you said, it's it's a very difficult topic and people, they feel like it's too hard for them to even think about or do anything about and they kind of turn their back or slip it under the carpet. But in fact, it's just one that in, in this day and age, you cannot afford to ignore it anymore. And we know in Australia that workplace mental health, it's a topic that is finally kind of coming out of in conversations. We see that compensation claims are increasing quite a bit. I mean, 91% of mental health claims are to do with stress and work overload in this country. And we know that if someone is off on a a workplace mental health claim, um, they're off for 15.3 weeks, whereas the average of all other mental health claims is only 5.5 weeks. So there's a huge amount of loss in, you know, the valuable IP that person has when they're not at work, the, the overload that the other team members have to pick up because they've got to pick up the work. Mm-hmm. The cost is for a workplace mental health claim is usually about 24500 on average where all other claims are on average $9,000. So, you know, there's just this huge gap even in the claims department where which is just increasing and that's why it's really important that we you know, we are we do have the courage to to think about and do something about workplace mental health and put in policies and programs that will support people. I mean, it is the legislation in this country for work health and safety that you create a workplace environment that keeps your people physically and mentally safe and healthy. So it is an obligation. The law obviously acknowledges that individuals need to also do things for themselves to keep themselves mentally and physically safe and healthy. But a workplace must be seen as putting proactive steps in place to ensure that mental health is at least maintained and certainly not made worse. Well, I'm glad to hear that there is some kind of legislation around that to kind of not force businesses, but in a, in a way do that yeah. and make sure they are looking after their people from a mental health point of view. Absolutely. Mm. So Heidi, from your experience, how do businesses start that conversation then? Well, it does vary right across the board, depending on the organisation, what they've done in the past, the, the style of culture that they have currently. And that's why it's, it's often really, I see it, the, the first step to have fresh eyes come into an organisation to just have that kind of overall look to see what is really going on. I mean, if you, I think you, you start to notice things like, 
you know, the, the absentees, and it's, it's an interesting one because when people are starting to feel like they're, you know, I, I talk about in a lot of the workshops that, that there's a lot of stress. Everyone's stressed out. There's no doubt. You, you say, how are you? Oh, I'm so stressed. Um, but what we want to do is make sure that people don't go from being stressed out, spiraling out of control into burnout. And the thing is, you don't wake up one morning burnt out. <laughs> our brain and our body has given us warning signs. It's often like kind of a, a slow gas leak. But unless you are aware of the signs that your body and brain are giving you, for mm-hmm. example, that might be someone might get a cold sore. You know, a lot of people, when they start getting stressed, they get a cold sore. That's uh, their body telling them things are a little off kilter. Pay attention. You need to intervene on yourself before things get worse. Other people, you know, their, their sleep is um, impacted. Others will get a bit sarcastic. Others will start to feel that they want to kind of take themselves away from social events that they would normally like to be a part of or they might not be excited about a a, a project at work anymore or their favorite Netflix binging is just not exciting them anymore. (laughs) So this is our body and brain giving us warning signs and in a workplace the same thing happens. There are warning signs. Now absenteeism is a big one because when people are not feeling very well mentally they won't come to work. They'll wake up and just feel like they cannot face a day amongst their colleagues with the responsibilities they have and they'll call in sick. So it's a number that's really worth watching to see is that absenteeism number increasing. And I think that's probably the best warning sign that a workplace can firstly look at. And then, of course, if you, you were starting to lose your best people or losing any, you know, just the retention number then is changing, that is because people are not finding the culture at your workplace is supporting their mental health and they will go looking for somewhere else. I think I think the stats show us that one in four people will leave their workplace of health in the next 12 months in this country for the sole reason that the workplace uh, is not putting things in place to support and maintain their physical and mental health. So, you know, if you times that by how many people are within organisations, you have got a very leaky bucket there that if you don't do something about, you're, you're just going to be wasting thousands of hours and hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, millions of dollars in productivity and recruitment losses. So it's an expensive thing to ignore. I like the analogy of a leaky bucket that completely makes sense to me. That's right. And you can, you can slap all those band-aids on it if you want. <laughs> but if you have not, um, it's actually a concept I talk about, uh, the resilience bucket in, in regards to a workplace. The thing is, if things aren't right in your bucket, if you think of resilience like a bucket, I should say, you know, we want it strong and sturdy. But if things are not right, the culture in the workplace isn't right, it's, it's like a little rusty hole starts to form and as we know little rusty holes become bigger holes and you know you start losing your best people you start wasting hard-earned dollars and you start missing untapped opportunities so that's why getting your culture right will keep your bucket really sturdy and it will patch those holes forever rather than just kind of putting these little band-aid solutions that are not a strategy they're like oh it's like oh shit I should put a fruit bowl in the kitchen. Oh shit. What what if I, what if I do yoga? If, what if I get a yoga teacher in on a Friday lunchtime and 
that, they, there we go. There's a good tick for me supporting the physical mental health of my people. But no, that's just like that Band-Aid solution and it doesn't actually make your resilience bucket very strong at all. So what are some of the things that we should be doing to stop that from happening? So you say, and I completely agree, we sh- you know, just putting a fruit bowl into the office or the kitchen and providing a gym session once a week or a yoga session once a week isn't good enough. I completely agree with that. But how, what do we do then? Because it's not, it's not easy, is it? No, it's not easy. And look, you know, the thing is, it is a start. I mean, certainly for people, it is a start. It's just that if you think that that's all you need, that's when it's a problem. Because I mean, as adults, we also can notice if a company is thinking that that's enough. And, 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 you know, you hear it, you know, where you get your water from, that people are like, oh, yeah, they think that putting a fruit bowl in the kitchen is, you know, (laughs) going to make me feel better. What a joke. And you'll see, you know, fruit going off because nobody's touching it. So I think certainly having this kind of overall strategy is really, really important. You've got to understand your people. You've got to you've got to ask questions, you've got to survey, you know, what do they want? What will they respond to? I mean, for the business leaders just to say, oh, I think we should do this, this and this. You need all the stakeholders to be involved in making decisions around what everyone will do. But I mean, some of the top things I see working very well is having flexible work arrangements, because having flexible work arrangements does allow for people to take care of themselves to to be the self-leaders they really should be able to be and to make smart decisions about taking care of themselves as well as being able to perform at work I see that as a really important one and probably the other really big one that I see working so well is having a calendar of professional development programs that tap into the technical aspects of their role but also the non-technical and I think that's really important and what I what I mean by that is for example I was working with a company a software company in Perth a global software company and they had this really gun sales manager and whenever he had kind of sales meetings one-on-one to deliver the the product he just always had good numbers he always kind of got the sale but if he had to actually pitch that to a board, you know, in a kind of a presentation style manner rather than just over a coffee in a coffee shop. But when it was that kind of formal presentation that he was pitching to a group of people, he just got so nervous and couldn't get his words out. And more often than not, he lost the sale. So when we were looking at this, and the company kept selling him, sending him on these really expensive sales training courses, but he was already a good salesperson. What he wasn't really good at was being able to stand up in front of a group and present. So when we kind of unpacked that, we realized that the company paid for his local Toastmasters membership, which was about $250 for the year, where he could develop presentation skills and every fortnight got to stand up in a small group where he felt safe to develop his confidence and that had such an impact so that's what I'm talking about this kind of technical and non-technical the technical is just keep sending on those sales training courses he'll become a better salesperson (laughs) but in fact it's just that's not working he's already he knows all of it let's find what are the other kind of what people would probably term more soft skills but they are so crucial for a really well-rounded 
team member to be able to to thrive and do the very best they can under all different situations. You're absolutely right. That's a fantastic way to look at it. I think even when I look at recruitment sites these days or just the trends in recruitment, companies are after people with soft skills more than they are hard skills these days because at the end of the day, we can all learn a technical skill if we really want to. Yeah, We don't all naturally have the soft skills to handle emotion or be able to present in front of people. That doesn't come naturally to everybody. So we do need to be taught that. So you're right. No, I love that idea. Yeah, definitely. And I I see it as well, Kirsty. I mean, I just see that with the emerging workforce, they really embrace that kind of not the non-technical aspects of a company, supporting them in those areas because they, more than any generation before, they believe that their working life is really just part of their kind of whole life and they want to develop their whole life and work is one section of that. So if they feel that the workplace is continuing to challenge them and develop them and help them to improve in lots of different ways professionally, which is not just those technical skills, then you you have created an environment where people want to stay. So especially, you know, we're living in a world where people don't stick with the same job for 50 years like, you know, generations before. So every, every kind of extra 6, 12 months that you are able to uh, keep your best, most talented people within your organisation, oh, wow, you are going to soar ahead of your competition. And, I, and that's, that's how I'm seeing it with those kind of non-technical skills. Absolutely. But how do we cultivate that kind of culture? It's not that easy just to, for an employee to go up to their managers or their leaders and say, hey, you know, I want to learn how to be a better presenter. I think that's quite a difficult conversation to have. Yeah, it is a difficult conversation to have. And that's why it's up to, I mean, it has to come from the top. I mean, we we have to have leaders in organisations and businesses who are willing to embrace this style of leadership. And if they don't get that by allowing people to become self-leaders, really, because that's what that is, to, to walk up to your manager and say, look, I would love to be a better presenter. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to be confident in yourself to be able to have that conversation. So, And that comes from a place of trust that I, I trust in that my direct manager who will not kind of laugh at me for wanting to do this, I trust in the fact that the, the environment here has been created in a way that I am able to step up and ask for what I need so that I can be a better employee. But that has to firstly come from the from the business leader. They've got to create that environment in the first place so people feel they can do it. Absolutely. So you mentioned self-leader a couple of times there. How do you define a self-leader? Yeah, look, I define a self-leader who is somebody who knows if their kind of inner compass is maybe a little off track and they need to put things in place for themselves to make sure that they are heading in the right direction. A self-leader is not sitting back waiting for other people to give them the life they want. Um, A self-leader knows that, well, this is my goal. I know that I have to put things in place that I can accomplish that goal. And knowing that when you are a self-leader that you need to put things, you know, habitually on a daily basis, you've got to put things in to every day when the times are good (laughs) 
so that when things get a little wobbly, you have really built up a great foundation to get you through those curveballs that life does throw you. So a self-leader is someone who really has that self-acknowledgement that, you know, if it's going to be, it's up to me. This is my life. <laughs> I'm the one who has to direct myself. I've got to be in the driving seat and I'm going to do what it takes to make sure I can reach the goal that I'm after. And, you know, you, if you, in workplaces, if you have created an environment where people can really kind of hone in to their own self-leadership, I mean, you've just got people then who are willing to, to innovate, to collaborate, to, you know, go that extra mile because for them they are motivated by continual improvement. Absolutely. And the reason I, I asked you that last question was because I wanted to bring us to talking about your book. When did you start writing the book? I started writing the book at the beginning of September last year, 2018. But you've been thinking about it for a, a little while before then, I think. I had always thought about, well, you know, people write books and you think, oh gosh, that's amazing. Like, but I don't know if I could ever write a book. But I mean, I've been thinking about it in that sense and wondering, oh, well, if I was to write a book, what would I write it about? And I didn't really know what that would be. I would, I wanted, if I wrote, wrote a book to be obviously something I'd be very proud of, that it wasn't just, you know, oh, I've got to get some words in, bound into a book. I wanted it to be something very authentic to me and something that I could also uh, be able to use in my professional life. I wasn't, I'm not interested in being an author who writes stories for the sake of it. It would want, I wanted it to be something that could then help to make a difference to other people. I suppose I, I like to think of it as a, a self-improvement book to help people become the self-leaders they're destined to be really is, is the, the nutshell of it. And so why, why was last September the time that made sense to you to start this journey of writing a book? Well, it was actually, um, it, yeah, the sea probably, I should say that it started in August. It was the 9th of August last year and I was sitting in my sunny backyard. It was the third anniversary of surviving a violent crime. And as you do on these kind of bigger anniversaries, you think about where you've been and what you've been through and where you've what you've come through and um, where you're going. And I was sitting there thinking about that incident and the impact that it had on my life. You know, I'd had a year of post-traumatic stress disorder. I had crippling insomnia for a long time. There was physical pain from the injuries and emotional pain from a lot of loss and betrayal. But, and, but I, like I was sitting there thinking about the fact that I, you know, I'd, I'd, I had got on with my life. You know, I had a new business and things were fabulous. But I also realised that I still had this huge amount of rage from the crime still infesting me really from the inside out it felt like it was mm -hmm. so yeah just so apparent that I had not let go of all my rage and in fact only the week before after I'd had about a year of pelvic pain and nausea and I you know had every poo wee blood breath test under the sun that had all come back saying I was completely healthy but I knew that there was something not quite right because I'd ended up in emergency from the pain and so they decided to open me up and have a look to see what was really going on and what they found was stage four endometriosis which is the worst stage that had uh, was covering my my uterus my ovaries my bowel my rectum my kidneys and my appendix 
my appendix was so rotted that they had to remove it. And I just knew that this rage that I had kept on inside of me had really been rotting me literally from the inside out. And if I did not somehow, some way, flip that adversity that I'd had on its head and claim back my power, it was going to be problematic probably for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I wanted to extract the learnings that I had from that experience. I wanted to extract the learnings I've had from various weird and wonderful experiences across the globe that have um, ranged from waking up one morning and not being able to walk for eight months because of this random virus, from being forced into a car in South Africa with an AK-47 pointed at my head um, and saying, having to say the final I love you and goodbye to my gorgeous leprechaun hubby who, when a tsunami was on its way to engulf me. So there have been a number of stories people have told me over the years. I do have some strange stories that have happened, but it's not just about telling the stories. It's about, uh, you know, because everybody has adversity, right? Everyone yeah. goes through really tough times. What do, what do we learn from that? And when we're learning something from it, how can we share that learning with others so they can, in fact, put some strategies in place that perhaps we haven't put in a place ourselves before? So that's kind of where the book was all about. I, I really wanted to find a way to, yeah, there's, there's, there's stories, but I really wanted to show how it's through that kind of concept of self-leadership that we can flip those adversities because we're all going to have them on, on their head. We can put things in place to build our resilience in preparation for the fact that there will be adversities. But when, we're, when we are self-leaders, we can come through the other side and keep on going and we can continue to make a difference to this world. Well, first of all, thank you for writing the book because I read it a couple of weeks ago. I think I read it within three days because I was so enthralled by the stories and the insights you were sharing from your life. So I certainly appreciated everything that you wrote about because it clearly was very emotional for you and it gave your personal self to us, which I don't think is very easy for most people to do. But what I love about the book is you do draw on these horrendous stories and experiences that you have had and how you turned yourself around and how you turned your life around but coupled with that how you can take that into the business or just general life and become that self-leader and you give practical tips after each chapter about how you can achieve that which I really appreciated. Yeah thank you and you know it's really interesting that now has developed into a masterclass called Courageous Self-Leadership that I am delivering in workplaces and it is all about that like how can we create an environment of self-leadership within workplaces because when that happens wow we just see all these amazing things it's it, you don't have people who are just sitting there waiting to be led by others you've got when you've got self-leaders who are confident and they trust in their own abilities, just, you know, innovate, as I said, innovation, creativity and collaboration and, and, and business success just follow. And I think it'll be the workplaces that really allow for that kind of environment that are going to be the number one in the industry. Absolutely. So, I don't even think we named what the book was. What, what's the name of your book? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's called, uh, her middle name is Courage, How Self-Leadership Transforms Pressure into Performance, Chaos into Clarity and Rage into Resilience. Love it. Absolutely love it. 
Yeah, it's been incredible, Kirsty. I mean, I launched, you know, I, as I said, I started at the beginning of September, the writing process, and just shy of a month ago, I launched the ebook version on Amazon. On launch night, it soared ahead of Tony Robbins, Richard Branson, Brené Brown, Simon Sinek, and the Barefoot Investor, <laughs> and got number one across six different categories. So, I like, I just am pinching myself still that. All this has happened in this kind of six-month, seven-month period and it's just been so successful so quickly. It's incredible. It absolutely is incredible and there's no reason why it shouldn't have ever been that way because the book is wonderful and like I said, it really does connect us more to you as a person and connects us more to how you think in terms of leadership and helping people in that way. So I could only have envisioned that would happen. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I had no vision of it, but I'm glad it has happened. Yeah, you can't go back now. That's it. Correct. I don't plan to. So is there another book on the horizon after this one? Oh, no. I'm just basking in the glory of this for a while. I will see. Good. I think that's a sensible way to go. Yes. Yes, definitely. So what are the tips that you would give people like you and me who are just kind of going into work, into the office that would just help them with anything that they're struggling with in that time of their life? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, the the one thing I see mostly in any, it doesn't matter what industry I'm working in, so what will happen if I'm doing any kind of workshop program or even when I do keep my keynotes, I have an online personal wellness scorecard that the individuals I get to fill out so that I understand that the, you know, a percentage of the people within this place actually are they're all you know, they're, they're quite fit, they're moving a bit. So I don't need to talk to them about how to move more when you are, you know, working a 10-hour day and then have to go home and be part of your family because I can see that they're actually finding a way to do that. So the whole idea of this scorecard is for me to understand what things are they doing really well and what things do I actually really need to hone in on to give them tips. Yeah. And I can assure you that it doesn't matter what industry it is, it doesn't matter what age group they are, it doesn't matter how long they've been working, the rejuvenation piece is always so drastically lower than any of the other kind of wellness benchmarks. People are just not taking the time to refresh, reboot, rest, rejuvenate, whatever you want to call it, so that they can actually perform at their very best at work. People are not you know, they're eating their lunch in front of their computer rather than just taking that that break. You know, and I talk about it from kind of both ends of the spectrum that workplaces are putting things in place that don't allow people to rest and rejuvenate as they should. And individuals are also not embracing that kind of self-leadership that I've talked about and making their own decisions and keeping really strong about them. So, for example, I noticed that Often workplaces, you know, that, that they're, calling, they're calling people after hours when they're trying to sit and have dinner with their families or they have an expectation that even on holidays that they must be emailing back their project team. So there's no kind of respect to yeah. protect and protect people's private time. And, we, you know, we live in this 24-7 world where we can access everything at any time of the day or night, but we have forgotten to put in the boundaries that allow our brain and body to have a proper rest. And, you know, this is, this is the, the biggest issue I see. And then again, as individuals, 
even if there's not those kind of expectations in the workplace, individuals are putting it on themselves. You know, they may go and have their lunch break, but they'll be on their phone scrolling through social media for the entire 30 minutes or 60 minutes, whatever they get. So again, they're they haven't given their brain an opportunity to rest. And I often talk about it like, you know, if you go to the gym and you're doing bicep curls and you're curling and you're curling and you're curling, well, eventually you've got to stop curling because you've got to give that muscle a rest if you want it to be able to continue to curl later on. Well, our brain is a muscle and it's exactly the same. If you do not give it snippets of time out, it's going to get tired. It's going to start making mistakes. You are going to take longer to get things done and you will not go home on time. And then there'll be this kind of combustion of feeling stressed about that, whinging about my workplace doesn't (laughs) allow me to have a life. Uh, The overload's too much. But we all have a responsibility to look after ourselves and just doing that alone, having a lunch break without your device can make a huge difference to your productivity in the afternoon. And then you'll get to go home and you can have dinner with your family uninterrupted. You can walk your dog and you can go and play trivia at the pub with your friends or you can go to pottery. You know, you can have this other life that we all feel that we don't have time for. But, of course, we just need to put boundaries in place. You're right. I think a lot of us, we probably most of us every day when we get asked this question, how are you doing? Everyone says, oh, I'm just so busy. I'm really busy at the moment. Yeah. And I'm sure people are busy a lot of the time, but I think we use the word busy too often these days. Mm. And we need to really look at our days and think to ourselves, well, if I am that busy, what am I busy doing? And what should I be doing instead? And how can I prioritize my time better? Because we all have the same number of hours in a day. Mm. Some of us are just better at prioritizing that time than others. Absolutely. You're so right. That word is, you know, it's just a fallback word, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, every, yeah, everyone is busy, but yeah, what does that mean? No, it's, it's defined so differently for different people. Isn't that just life? We're all busy yeah. doing something. Yeah. And doesn't that mean I just have a full life? Isn't that great? I have a full life. I, yeah. I love having a full life. So, <laughs> so again, how you frame it. Absolutely. You actually gave me a great piece of advice a couple of years ago because I came to you and I said, Heidi, I'm not sleeping very well. I sleep probably four or five hours a night. And the first question you asked me was, what do I do before I go to bed? And I hate to say this, but I was looking at my phone. (laughs) I remember. (laughs) Literally before I go to bed and the moment I woke up. And since our conversation, you told me to plug my phone in kind of the opposite side of the room or even if I could outside of the room I use my phone as an alarm so I do still keep it in my room but I I try my hardest to put it on the other side into the plug that's the opposite side of the room because otherwise I do just get engrossed in it and it just makes my sleep so much worse that evening yeah yeah I mean I think there's now so many studies around this issue of people just scrolling on their devices while they're in bed and Again, you know, there's just, there's even, there's so many parts to that because there's the part where, well, you've now brought in kind of this kind of work environment into what should just be your rest environment. And you need to train your body and brain to understand that when you're in bed, this is your downtime resting time. It's not checking emails. It's not looking at social media. It's not making to-do lists because that is a very different environment and your brain it starts firing when you're doing those types of things and you want your brain to know that 
it needs to just start to rest and wind down. So from someone, I mean, I, as I said, I've had crippling insomnia. I've had it all my life. In fact, it, it uh, bad at um, different times from when I was even a little girl and my year two teacher gave my parents a relaxation tape to try to help me sleep. <laughs> so I have I've had put a lot of time and effort into understanding how to go to sleep and read every study under the sun. So I feel like I have tried and tested everything. Um, but that one with the phone is certainly um, the very first port of call when people say, oh, I'm not sleeping well, I'll say to so to then get that phone away from you. Because, of course, when you're a bad sleeper and you wake up and then you reach your phone, and I may recall, Kirsty, you actually said that's something you did. Check some LinkedIn posts, uh, maybe at 2 a.m., things like that. Oh, <laughs> Am I recalling correctly? Uh, no, absolutely. I, I, I could not even lie about it. I, that is that, well, that was me. I have to yes. say, it, in, now and again, it probably still is me, but I really mm-hmm. do try at you know, 70% of the time to, to not do that anymore because it is crippling otherwise for sleep. Yeah. Sleep deprivation yeah. is just not good. It's not good. And you know what? 70% is really good because perfection is a fairy tale. <laughs> so if you haven't got to 70%, I'm very proud of you. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I could sit here and say I was doing it perfectly, but I'm certainly <laughs> on the right track, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got any other tips? because you said you've read everything under the sun when it comes to sleep and getting through insomnia Mm. as well as that phone trick are there any like another one or another two that you think could really help someone yeah look there the thing is putting a habit in place that really kind of signals to your brain and body that you are coming into this sleep time is really important so you, you may want to just start off with like a 15 minute period of time if you know that right, I have to get up at six in the morning. If I'm wanting to get the seven, eight hour sleep, you know, 10, 11 p.m. is when I'm going to bed. That is my deadline. I need to make sure I'm doing that every night. So it's creating firstly that habit of going to sleep, turning the lights off at the same time every single night. Okay. Because it's that habit that your body gets in the habit of doing and it knows, okay, now it's, you know, it's, it's, this is what's happening and I know I need to wind down. And then it's building kind of a, uh, what I call a sleep ritual prior to that time. So I can share you with you what I do and people can take little bits and bobs for what it would be for them. But uh, I go, my 10, 10, 10 p.m. is when I go to sleep. I wake up at for six. So at 9 p.m., there is an alarm that goes off on my phone every single night to say, put all your devices away, no excuses, <laughs> in capitals. <laughs> and so no matter what I'm doing, even if I have a really big deadline the next day for work, I stop doing anything like that. All devices, TVs off, computers off, phones away. And I read a storybook. I don't read an autobiography. I don't read a business book. Because even autobiographies, I start going, oh, wow, that person's so amazing. I should try and do that in my life. <laughs> and I start making plans on what, how I'm going to be better. And so that's not good for my brain. I need to just, you know, relax and read a storybook. Then five minutes prior to the 10 p.m., I do a kind of a movement yoga-ish stretching sequence that, again, physically then my body knows that it's time to wind down. But I think, you know, the key, the key being is that you, you have the habit of the same time each night you keep your bedroom for what your bedroom is meant to be. It's not another office, your bedroom. Your bedroom is for sleeping. It is for reading. 
and it is for sexy time, nothing else, <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> so you've got to make sure that you stick to that so that you know the body and brain knows this is time, I'm winding down, I'm going to sleep, I'm going to recharge so that you can perform really great the next day. I like the sound of that. <laughs> we should definitely be doing what you just said. That makes more sense to me. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> so in that, on that front, though, then how, what are your thoughts on flexible working, this idea that we're blurring the lines between work life and home life? Because that's certainly what is happening at the moment. We're allowed to work from home sometimes during the week or a, another environment. It's pretty difficult for us to now separate those two things because we've been enabled through technology to be able to do that. Absolutely. And again, this is where I think we're everyone, we're, we're still trying to work it all out. I mean, I flexible work arrangements to me are gold. They really are gold. They allow for individuals to look after their physical, mental, social health. You know, if you can, for parents, if you can pack lunches and get kids to school in the morning without just that complete horrendous madness that goes on if you've got a breakfast meeting at 7.30 in the morning. I mean, how do you do that? It just the juggle and the stress that that causes. But to have some, um, a flexible arrangement that allows for that, I, I think it was um, Deloitte were one of the first companies that I'd heard of in Australia who promised no meetings before 9am for that specific reason. But again, then that allowed for people who like to exercise in the morning they could also do that. For people who wanted to walk their dog, they could also do that. And then they could turn up to work, not in this state of complete, utter panic because of what they've had to deal with for the last hour and a half to make that happen, but be more likely to be in a state of calmness and ready to attack the day. So I think it's, it's absolute gold, flexible work arrangements, but again, boundaries need to be put in place because just because you are allowed to work at home, doesn't mean at 11 p.m. you should be in your bedroom on your laptop doing your work. Yeah. You know, even if you are in a little studio apartment and it's all just one room, make sure you have that kind of office corner. That's where you do your work so that that doesn't then filter in to those other parts of your life, including where you should be sleeping and only doing that. So, again, as self-leaders... We know that we need to put these boundaries on ourselves. If we want to be part of this amazing flexible work arrangement world, terrific, but put in the boundaries so we can actually do the work when we're doing the work time, you know, have that focus time. But when we're having our rejuvenation time, separate that. Great advice. I think that's so important, certainly for me and, and, and like you, Heidi, we work from home on occasion mm. when we're not with clients. Mm. We're, we're at yeah. home doing our admin or our phone calls, emails. And mm. I created an office when, when I came back to the UK for that exact reason because I didn't want to use my bedroom as a place of work. My bedroom yeah. is just for sleeping and just, and just relaxing, really. Yeah. My office is purely there just for work, which Fantastic. made the world of difference to, to my working life and just my life in general because I was able mm. to separate that yeah it seems like such a silly little thing but it's, uh, the impact is actually really huge it honestly there's all the researchers out there you know if you yes it's nice and comfortable to lay in your bed and with the duvet and have your laptop on your lap mm, mm. we'll get it we've all been there but yeah to actually get work done and be productive it's better to do it in a properly set up workstation an environment yeah. that 
cultivates creativity and just good yeah. focused work. Absolutely. Without a doubt. So on that front, what does the future of the workplace look like to you or function like? To me, the future of the workplace is an environment where people are going to be able to be their physical and mental best selves. And the, the benefit of this will be that they're able to cope with stress. You know, they're going to be able to deal with unrealistic deadlines at time, you know, over overcommitted work projects, the workload when even when it feels like it's such a mountain, because they're able to better cope with stress because of what's been put in place um, within that workplace, they will be able to deal with that. They will be able to adapt to change. You know, I think in this kind of ever, ever changing 24-7 complex world that we are living in, the skill of being able to bend rather than break will be one of the greatest assets individuals can have as we move into the future of work. work. And and finally, I see it, um, again, the environment allowing for people to have a real can-do attitude. You know, they're going to look for solutions rather than problems. Having optimistic team members makes the world of difference um, to a workplace where they are willing to collaborate and you know create with um, others in the workplace to all to to just be also always looking for those solutions I think when the, the best companies the ones that are going to attract the most talented within the industries are going to create environments create cultures where those three things can happen they cope with stress they adapt to change and can have a kin to attitude I like that. That sounds like a good future workplace that people should be working in. It does, doesn't it? I want to work for a company like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I do, definitely. And, you know, there are there are lots around um, and companies have just got to, you know, there's no cookie cutter solution to make it happen. That's the thing because we, they're all, they all have their very different environments, the different challenges, the different opportunities. So it's about finding a strategy that works for them. And you're right, you, you mentioned just you know being a more positive workforce and a happier workforce I think more often than not we are thinking about all the negatives of a workplace Mm. whether that's design related you know we're sitting on bad chairs or we don't have enough sunlight coming in or we don't have a kitchen to go and make our food for the day whatever they are we all know what the negatives are and I think we Mm. just need to park that in a some way not not completely but now start to engage with well, what is good about my workplace? Mm. What is mm. good about my colleagues? What is good about my manager and, and have a more positive mindset? Absolutely, because it is how we frame it all. And it'd be a rare, rare circumstance where there is nothing at all positive to focus on, I would imagine. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just yeah, how, how you see it and how you choose to see it. Absolutely. And that's actually, that's probably the, one of the biggest things I've ever learned from you, Heidi, is looking at things half glass full and not half glass empty. Oh, thank you, Kirsty. No, seriously, honestly. And I've, I've been to your presentations and we've partnered on a presentation mm. in the past and all of your content and all of your information is so important. And so everybody needs to know who you are. Oh, thank you. Well, the world is about to with your incredible podcast channel. You know, <laughs> exactly. It's going to get yeah. out there. It's going to go big. 
it's going to go massive. (laughs) Thank you so much, Heidi. My pleasure. It's just been fabulous to chat through all this because I know we both, you know, we're such believers in all of this. You know, we're on the same page about it all times. And that's why I just, I truly love that we can have this conversation. 